think it's a good challenge for my for myself for uh, for myself. Um, it's a good uh, massive stepping stone for myself um, and also um, for myself after having the individual world record. Um, I think it's another stepping stone for a massive uh, achievement for myself. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 126 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's riding for himself. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash science. And yes, we are starting with a review today from the United States. States from Carlos Lorca from Texas. Great podcast. This is a great podcast for serious amateur cycling. There's solid advice that will help you fine tune your training. Damien is easy to listen to and breaks down concepts to an understandable level. I can't recommend this podcast enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Carlos. It really does mean a lot that you went to iTunes and wrote that review. And a reminder to you that if you like the show, I would love if you took the time out to write a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes my dog sing Thank you very much. Now, let's get to the performance probe this week. And probe number one, the role of resistance exercise intensity on muscle fiber adaptions. It's super important when you are setting a strength program to think about what you want the result to be. Are you trying to build muscle, create power? What specific adaptions are you trying to get? So this is a review that went through the training variables that contribute to the performance, cellular and molecular adaptions to resistance exercise. And from what they're reporting is that relative intensity, which is the percentage of one repetition maximum, appears to be an important factor. This review summarizes data from numerous resistance exercise training studies that have monitored percentage fiber type, fiber type cross-sectional areas, percentage cross-sectional areas, and myosin heavy chain isoform expression. In general, relative intensity appears to account for 18 to 35% of the variance of hypertrophy to resistance exercise. On the other hand, fiber type was not related to the relative intensity used for training. So when competitive lifters were compared, those typically utilizing the heaviest loads, which is equal to or greater than 90% of one rep max, that is weightlifters and powerlifters, they exhibited a preferential hypertrophy of type 2 fibers when compared to bodybuilders who appear to equally hypertrophy both type 1 and type 2 fibers. So the results of this review, it's saying that the data is suggesting that the maximal hypertrophy occurs with loads from 80 to 95% of one rep max. So if this is the goal of any part of your strength training, if it's a periodized strength training program, then it's saying that you should be lifting weights that are between 80 and 95% of your one rep max. Probe number two is another study and it's kind of with the theme of this entire show. So I thought I would throw it in. It's called Physiological and Performance Characteristics of Road, Mountain Bike and BMX Cyclists. And The purpose of this paper was to quantify several physiological and power output characteristics of high-performance road, cross-country mountain bike, downhill mountain bike, and BMX cyclists. So 24 high-performance cyclists completed both an incremental ramp test and a power profile assessment across two separate testing sessions. The power profile assessment consisted of maximal efforts lasting 5 seconds, 
15 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 240 seconds, and 600 seconds. The ramp test provided measures for VO2 max, maximal aerobic power, and individual VO2 power regression equations, while the power profile assessment determined metabolic costs and aerobic capacity and power output across each effort. The data demonstrated that road and cross-country mountain bike cyclists possessed significantly higher VO2 max and anaerobic capacities from the downhill mountain bikers and the BMX cyclists. Further, the same cohorts produced significantly greater MAP as well as relative mean power output across efforts lasting equal to or greater than 15 seconds. So the BMX and the downhill mountain bikers demonstrated greater peak power outputs, approximately 200 watts across the shorter efforts of the power profile. So that really does demonstrate the differences between the disciplines and the training that will change your potential output if you head down one of these paths. So the data did demonstrate that road cross-country mountain bike cyclists possessed higher aerobic physiological capacities and power outputs than downhill mountain bike and BMX cyclists. The latter disciplines possessed greater explosive power outputs. Together, these findings reflect the specificity of selected traits that are possessed within each cycling discipline. They sure do And this is a study that you can get a hold of. I've got a link, of course, in the show notes, and you can go through this entire study so you can get a little bit more of an understanding of the physiological differences between these different disciplines. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts. And this week, how to apply science to your cycling with Jason Boynton, MS. Master of Science. This episode continues on from a previous show that I did based on a talk given by Jason called Finding the Truth in Endurance Sports. I asked Jason to come onto the show to talk in more detail about how to read scientific papers and reviews in order to gain a better understanding to the questions on your endurance training and also how to apply that information from the papers to your own cycling. And knowing if you should implement the techniques or products in your own cycling is just as important as knowing how to interpret the results of a scientific study or a review. And because there are plenty of pitfalls to navigate through and Jason does a great job in steering you around these while also setting up the mental shift that needs to take place when looking for answers through the best way that we have to decipher reality, which is, of course, science. Just a little bit more on Jason before we get moving. He is an exercise physiologist, a researcher, a USA Cycling Level 1 coach and and also an elite level cyclist. He has a master's in exercise physiology from Eastern Michigan University and an honors degree in cell biology and physiology from the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater. During his master's degree, he studied under associate professor and USA cycling faculty member Stephen McGregor, which we have interviewed on the podcast twice in the last couple of years. So that's pretty exciting that he actually was learning a lot of his coaching methodologies and probably the way that he approaches science as well from Dr. Stephen McGregor. And as a researcher, he started working with trained endurance athletes in 2005. So he's been around this stuff a long time. And that's why I got him onto the show to talk about this in a little bit more detail from someone that has probably put a lot of time and thought into not only getting the most out of the information that science produces, but how it fits in the greater context of applying information to anything, not just cycling. And in this vein, he is continuing his studies He's just about to start a PhD at Edith Cohen University in Perth, Australia. So if you are in Perth, give me or him a shout because he's definitely going to need some cycling guides when he is there. But let's get back to the topic at hand. I started by asking Jason, why would you even go to the trouble of trying to find information in science? I think it's important to point out that what you're looking for is 
is, is something beyond yourself, beyond your own experience and beyond the anecdote of other riders or professionals or, or something like that. I mean, it might sound grandiose, but when you're looking up scientific research, you're, you're looking for the highest form of truth. So that's why we have it. It's not there for entertainment or anything like that. We're trying to determine truth. And the scientific method is the best way that we have to determine that truth. You should always be keeping that in mind that when you're doing this, it's to find that higher truth. There's a couple ways that you can approach looking for uh, scientific literature. Uh, you can have a specific question in mind that you want answered, and you can use different outlets for that. Or one thing I do is I subscribe to either different journals I like, or I also am on, there's uh, cycling science forums, and that will kind of help you be kind of in tune with the new research that's coming out. So that you get kind of handed to you whatever's new and whatever's coming out and you, you can kind of be on tap of the, the kind of new stuff. And, and if you're on the cycling science forums, you can kind of be listening in on the discussions that are going in with that research. So I think there's two ways to, to get the scientific research. Um, you can go looking for it yourself and you can also be watching this stuff on, on tap. Uh, also, I, I have a, a Twitter feed that is exercise science related. So I follow a, a bunch of exercise science scientists. I also follow some um, exercise science journals. And when I want to be on tap with this type of thing, uh, I just go and I look at that Twitter feed and, and see if there's any kind of new articles coming out. Kind of going with the, the search and how to search for specific articles, I think for the layperson, a good place to start is either Google Scholar, which is different from the normal Google, because uh, Google Scholar will bring up scientific literature. And then you also you can use uh, PubMed.gov. It's a kind of a public database in the United States. The, the issue with those two ways of acquiring scientific um, literature is that a lot of times you, can, you will only be able to get the abstract. You won't be able to get the full articles because these journals will want you to pay for them. And a lot of times that's kind of expensive. So when you get the abstract, the abstract is just this kind of small, short snippet of what the, is in the paper. So it has their, all the pieces of a scientific paper, you would have your introduction, your methods, your um, results, and your conclusion, and it would have like a sentence or two for each one of those pieces. When you, when you search on these public uh, methods like Google Scholar or, or PubMed, you only, a lot of times, will only get that abstract. So if you want the full paper, you end up having to pay. So the question is, is or the thing is, is a lot of times when you, when you pay for these articles, it's quite expensive if you don't have a subscription to the journal that you're looking at. So the question is, is how do you get around paying for that? And a lot of times, if you're lucky enough to be, like for me, I'm a, I'm a state employee with, and I'm a, I'm a researcher, so I have access to the, the university database um, or the university that I work for. I have access to their database. So I, I get, can get a lot of these articles that I want for free. Another way to do it is if you, uh, I think a lot of times you can go to a library and use their database, like a public library. Uh, and then also it, there's a lot of times if you, states and different forms of governments will have ways that their citizens can get access to um, scientific literature without having to pay for it. So I guess when there is a will, there's a there's a way to get to these articles without having to pay full price. I think another way to kind of find good articles is if you look at the citations in papers and if you look at the citations that are in textbooks, so you'd be able to get other papers to kind of expand on the issues that you're seeing, looking at the topics that you want to look at. And one of my favorite that I really like to use is what's called uh, Web of Science. That's usually what I do, where I do most of my searching for scientific literature. It seems like the first thing to do would be to start at that top level if you don't have immediate access or you haven't hunted down the local library or whatever. 
So starting with Google Scholar, PubMed, and if you get stuck where you just are finding that you have an abstract, that's where you have to get a bit more creative. Yeah. I like your suggestions about looking at references or even the authors or the collection of authors that have written the paper and even hunting for them to see what else is done around that, even if it was studies done before or after, so you could get an idea. Because in full introductions, they do explain different parts of studies that can make it a little bit clearer to put into context as well. I guess it takes some time to kind of go over the types of articles that are out there. The two biggest that you'll see are review articles and then articles that come from actual experiments kind of or, or retrospective studies or case studies. For me, I, I see it as this dichotomy between a review, which is someone writes to look at a collection of, of scientific articles, and then you have these individual scientific studies and articles. So there's advantages and disadvantages to looking at both of these. I enjoy reading reviews. So basically, let's say if you're looking up, for example, there's reviews on recovery modalities. Uh, You can, instead of looking up all of the, the individual experiments on each different type of recovery modality, you can look up a review of that literature. And some sports scientist out there has compiled these already and, and has, has written about them. And, and a lot of times they will give you their feedback on, on the issue. And the nice thing about that is those reviews are also peer-reviewed. So that they have other scientists that are looking at it to make sure that this person is basically saying what they're supposed to be saying. Yeah, it's a great way to cut down on reading pretty much because they've done all the hard work for you and put it into a form that's a lot more succinct than going through and reading 20 papers individually. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's not only that, but they also read a lot nicer. They flow a lot better. So if you can read, if you can see yourself reading a scientific textbook or a chapter in a scientific textbook, you can certainly handle reading a review most times. That's the nice thing about that. Um, the disadvantages of the review, reading a review article, is you are kind of at the mercy or, or you have to put a lot of trust in that reviewer. Mm, yep. So you have, to, you have to trust that that reviewer is citing the papers that they're citing and they're saying about the papers what the, what the author of the paper is actually saying. Does that make sense? So to kind of have an example there's there's people that have written reviews about like a topic about uh, acclimation to training at altitude, and they'll cite certain papers to say something in their review. But when you actually read the original paper, it doesn't necessarily say what the reviewer is saying the paper says. That's a really interesting point because you would think that everyone else that's outside of the academic world that has the potential to butcher the information more than the actual people that are in the middle of it. But you're saying that there's still that danger when somebody is writing it because they're putting their own spin on whatever it is, and that could be misleading, incorrect, or whatever, just not accurate compared to the original yeah. paper. Yeah, that gets, it gets into this interesting discussion because we're humans and we always have bias, so it's really hard to take that out. And that's what the peer review and scientific method is here for, is to take that bias out. But even when you're writing a reviewer and reviewers can, can uh, insert their own bias in there. But the thing is, is that you as a layperson or another scientist, you, you can't discard what that person is saying in the review simply because there's bias out there. You, if you feel that there's something different than what the reviewer is saying, you have to cite your own literature uh, to back up your statements or point out the flaws in their reasoning or the flaws that in their in what they're citing. Mm-hmm. So just because there's this bias doesn't allow people to disregard what is out there. You can't just disregard it. You have to come back with your with your own kind of scientific ammunition. Which this is kind of something I think we will touch on when we start talking about interpreting individual studies. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into too much of it now, but it's it's important to be able to put the study in context and then frame up around 
what they're actually doing and how it relates to you and learning how to draw your own conclusions based on the evidence you see rather mm-hmm. than just falling into what someone else says and being lazy about it pretty much. Yeah. We talked a little about the review and talk a little bit about um, articles that are looking at specific uh, science experiments or specific case studies. The nice thing about those is there might not be enough of those t- specific studies or specific research to allow for a review to be written. So if you're really trying to stay on the edge of the science, these articles about individual studies are the way to go to kind of, so like I said, to be on top of things. And then also it's, it's nice because it's what you call primary literature, which means the person who did the experiment or a, a person that was involved in the experiment was involved in writing the paper. That is not necessarily true with reviews. Basically, you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. When you read the primary literature, you're getting it straight from the researcher that did the research, which is very nice. Which I guess is what people are thinking about when they think scientific papers. But when you start digging into it, there are so many variations of methods and and styles of actual papers that it, it gets a little murky at some point. But I know... Primarily, this is what I go after for the reasons that you said as well, because you have to wait if it's going to be reviewed by somebody else and, and written up in, in a different context or whatever. But just on its own, it really is the best information that you can get. Yeah, um, on its own. But then you know, we'll talk about more about how to interpret all of these later on, but you really have to be careful of you can really get into cherry picking data if you're just if you're not reading the whole big picture of, of all of these single articles. Yep. Is there a certain type of paper that's more common endurance research that you've come across? With the individual papers, uh, you can kind of break those down into different things. You know, sometimes they do these studies in the lab. For example, you know, they'll have uh, like a double-blind crossover study for uh, a nutrition supplement. I did one of those a couple summers ago. And you use the same athletes, um, and you run them through the experiment twice, and you would change one thing, but nobody knows when that factor has been changed. We basically had, uh, we we set up a, a study where we were looking at beach supplements, and you know they would come in, they would take their initial readings, they would take the beach supplement for a week. They'd come back. We would do some testing on them. We'd give them a week washout period. They'd come back. They'd get supplement again. But nobody knew whether they were getting the um, their real supplement or a placebo supplement. And then they would do the same process over again. And then they'd do the same test again. This is what's called a double-blind crossover. That's a type of study they would see. So there's all types of different studies. Another type of study that you see in endurance sport is kind of the retrospective study, kind of either like instead of running a training study where you set up the training bouts and follow the athlete all the way through the bout and then and see the differences at the end, you can kind of look at what the athlete did do over the course of time for example, you can say, ask the question, well, how are the pros actually training? And just look at their logs and things like that. Look at the time that they spend in power zones and compile all that data and write a description about it. Or, for example, there was a recent study that came out about sprint finishes in the tour. Mm, yep. Uh, that was by Halo. But you know, there, was that recent, there was that recent study, and they basically just looked at where the winners were at different times in the last few Ks of, of, the, of the event. So they were, again, it was retrospective, just kind of a description of what has happened, not exactly a scientific experiment. So I think um, if you're a layperson and you're kind of interested in reading about scientific literature, uh, there's a few things you should, you should kind of uh, realize when you come to it. And um, 
I recently wrote an article for, for Training Peaks, and I had written that article pretty soon after I had written my master's thesis. So I was still kind of in this scientific writing mode. And, you know, they posted the article and, and on their, on their uh, Facebook, and I, I got some really good feedback about the article on, on, the, on that feed there. And what it seemed like was, was there was people that had either engineering or scientific backgrounds who were fine with that type of writing and were picking up how, how, to, how to read it. And then there was also individuals that seemed that were expressing that they were confused within the first couple paragraphs. And what I think that kind of boiled down to was how their approach was for, for reading that, those, those articles. If you approach reading uh, scientific articles like it's a blog or a piece of fiction, you're not going to get out of the article what you need to get out of the article. A few tips when you're reading scientific literature is first read that abstract that we talked about so that you have an idea where it's going, but also be prepared to read it really slow. Reading a scientific article is going to be read, like reading, kind of like reading a, a repair manual or, or 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 something like that. Imagine like trying to read a manual for setting up DI two shifting or something like that. It's not something you're going to read once and just get. I mean, you have to repeat, you know, read sentences over again before you it really sets in. So you have to, like you were saying, you have to be a very active reader when you're reading these type of articles. And and also there's. There's um, a lot of places in these articles where they'll shorten things with, with acronyms. And if you miss it, all of a sudden you'll see this acronym every time in, in, the, in the text. And you'll be like, I can't remember what that acronym this is. This is me. I'm going back to the, to the start every single time. I always miss them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's good to have, good to have, you know, be really reading it slowly, picking up those acronyms. I do that too. Like, oh shoot, I, I missed where that acronym was explained. So, but yeah, sci- in scientific writing, they will only explain that acronym once. So you'll have to, like I said, go back. I think it's a really good tip to have Google and the internet open and ready to go. Uh, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong with stopping in the middle of what you're reading and going to maybe a Wikipedia page or something like that, just to kind of find more information about maybe a little subtopic just so you can get a better idea of where you're going. And there's always going to be something you don't know. So, oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, and it's super important because if you don't have an understanding of some small little part, then it could change the entire paper. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty much just like if you miss what the acronyms are, it's going to change the entire output that you're going to get from the paper. So, yeah, that's a really good tip. So yeah, I think when you're reading it is understand that if you, if you print out maybe a five-page scientific article or a 20-page review, that's going to take you a lot longer than you would think you would, it would to read it just because of how that style of writing isn't written to be read quickly. So the, I guess the important thing is is, is, is take it slowly and, and certainly don't get frustrated and, and make sure you, you try to pick out the, the main points that they're trying to get across. Yeah, what I'm kind of getting from you and a good way to start thinking about this is you really need to take an entire mind shift. Instead of just being someone that's consuming things and just blindly reading to get through them or whatever, it's to actually be critical about what you're reading and just change your entire style. It's not reading a magazine, like you said. You have to go into it thinking completely differently to get a different outcome rather than what you would get from just reading a magazine article. So for me, that comes back to that first point you said about potentially subscribing to your favorite journals and things, going closer to the source rather than just going to the magazine that might have changed it around, the magazine blog or even podcast that puts their own spin on it that means that it might have slightly changed the message. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a mind shift overall, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the upsetting things for me right now is someone that's moving themselves through this sports science field is the lack of citations on a lot of the training blogs that are out there. And not only that, but also um, the lack of comment sections. So it's kind of one of these things where it's comment sections kind of get abused by people. Uh, but 
in, in their own re- respect, comment sections also offer a kind of peer review for people to chime in and say whether the this paper, the, the blog article is valid or not. Not to say that anyone that's chiming in is an expert on what they're talking about, but yeah, it gets back to kind of the, the presentation that you went over before that I did. It was this kind of um, finding truth and, and knowledge and, and, and sorting through all of the stuff that's out there. Yeah, just having that, that open conversation about information and not hiding sources or just being deceiving in, in what you're actually doing, um, which yeah. brings us to the next point, which is interpretation. And this is a really big one because this is either going to make or break what you do with the information and whether it is really useful to you. So where do you start with interpretation? Well, that's a good question. There's, a, I think there's a there's a lot of places to look at. But um, one thing we I think we kind of touched on a little bit is to look at the, what the body of the research says. If you want to cherry pick data you, and, and argue with people, you can do that all day long uh, on different topics. Um, I've been guilty of this. Um, I try not to do it anymore, but uh, I mean, when the beetroot study stuff was coming out, and it's still coming out, I mean, you have positive and negative uh, results and you can go back and forth on that all day. Uh, but really what you have to do is look at the whole body of research um, and, and kind of go with that because it's not always black and white. And I would say as we progress with the science in endurance training, things are going to be less and less black and white. I, th- I think we've, as science as a whole and endurance science goes, um, I really think we've picked most the low-hanging fruit. Uh, so it, it, as we go along, the conversations about performance increasing is going to become more and more nuanced. Mm. People who are looking for that black and white easy answer, if that's what they're looking for, they're going to walk away with the wrong impression of what reality is. When you dig into it, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of nuance. Which, at the end of the day, people just want a yes or a no, right? <laughs> they want it to be binary, but a lot of times the, the conversation is a little bit more complicated than that. Which is why it's easy for people marketing products to go down this road of presenting information that's black and white. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, I talked about this a little bit in my, in my video. When you're looking up scientific literature, uh, a lot of people are looking for the latest and the greatest. And... Which is, which is fine. I mean, we're all looking for that edge in competition. Um, but realize that, you know, when you're looking up things for the latest and greatest, first of all, those latest and greatest are, is going to come out, you know, not in reviews. It's going to come out in these uh, single articles about single scientific experiments. But the latest and greatest is going to have the least amount of evidence to back it up and the least amount of evidence to explain how to apply it. So be aware of that. Um, so because because of, of the latest and greatest is the latest and greatest and has the least amount of evidence to back it up, you have to kind of weigh it against what you're already doing and kind of say, uh, which gets into a little bit about application, but um, understanding that even if there, there's positive results in a study, it doesn't necessarily mean you should move forward on it because you might be doing something better already. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. So I think the other thing to kind of realize when you're interpreting these studies is, is that these studies are looking at a mean of a group. So they're combining a group together, a group of athletes, hopefully, and looking at that mean, the average. And then they're comparing that average against another average if you're doing a statistical analysis like a, a, a t-test or something like that. And then they're looking for a significant difference and hopefully that significant difference can be chalked up to the the one thing you change in the experiment. But the thing is, is when you when you're looking at individual athletes, uh, and when you look at the in- individual data points, you might have had people in that experiment that responded to it really good, 
or really well, I should say. Um, and then you would have other people on that experiment that didn't respond at all. But the people who responded really well um, changed the mean enough to show a significant difference. So that's something you should keep in mind when you're interpreting these type of experiments. Which is definitely something that I've come across recently in most of the altitude studies that I have been reading, that the changes to individuals can be great, but... Yeah, you're right. They're bringing up the mean because there are some people that aren't getting adaptions at all, really. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing you want to look at, too, is in these ex- these studies uh, are very, very small uh, in terms of an N or a number of participants a lot of times. And this is always something that really surprises people in other fields. Scientists in other fields, I feel, are often surprised by how small the N is for what is normal, quote-unquote normal, in a sports science experiment. A lot of times, you know, experiments I've done have been 9, 10, 11 individuals, and that's really small. And the, the, you, you get that small amount because it's, there's a real limit to the population uh, of people that you can pull from. We were doing, say, a study on obese adults in the United States we'd have a huge number of people that we'd be able to pull from. And we'd hopefully be able to get 50, 60, 100, 200 people to be involved in that study. But when you're looking for a study that is pulling on elite uh, or professional or highly trained, specifically cyclists, that's a very small group to pull uh, subjects from. So these studies are inherently really small, and that leads to problems with statistics. So you could have you could have something significant going on, but because you know maybe you had one outlier or something like that in your small n, that could throw your results off, and then you end up still publishing the results. But you have to realize that these these studies are have very small ends, and that leads to issues with the statistics a lot of times. But it doesn't necessarily mean we discard the, the research simply because the N was small. It's, it's, we have to just understand that's the best we can do, and we, we just go with that. Another thing to look at with interpreting these studies is the different types of studies. There's different ways to break these down, but I, I break them down into in vivo versus in vitro. In vitro works more with cellular, um, molecular genetic type levels of things looking at basically cells in a petri dish is, is a good way to look at in vivo looks more at the, the system as a whole or the species or the subject as a whole and when you're talking performance research and looking at papers that will make you faster it's going to be better to look at papers that looked at performance uh, factors or factors that that are performance parameters. If you're looking up a paper that's kind of saying that, I'm just going to throw this out there. Let's say you're looking at a supplement paper and it shows that it increases some activity of an enzyme. An upregulation of this enzyme could be hypothesized to cause an increase in performance. So that study does not necessarily mean that that supplement will increase your performance. That study is basically a good study to say we need to do performance research, but it doesn't necessarily say that the performance enhancement will happen when you take that um, supplement. I think the best way to, when you're looking for studies of what, what will help your performance is to look at things like, well, did their VO2 max increase? Did their efficiency increase? Did their power output increase? That type of thing, like things that will actually that we know relate to increases in performance. Uh, I think one of the biggest take-home messages when you're looking at a body of evidence or a body of research or you're reading a review, if you're going in uh, looking to for an answer to a question, I think it's very intellectually mature and productive to say, I don't know if you can't find any good conclusions to the question you're asking. If you say, I don't know, that means that you will hold that position until good evidence comes along to answer that question. I think when you're reading scientific papers, to answer a question 
I think saying I don't know after you've done all that research can be really hard to do, but I think it's a really honest thing to do, and it also is really good for finding the truth later on. Yeah, this is good. This is really good. I like it because a lot of the times you do form an opinion or you make your mind up about a specific part of training or whatever, and you might not have time to revisit it in the detail that you did at that point. So like you're saying, if you make a decision, you most might be closed to anything in the future because you agreed or disagreed with something a long time ago. So being open to this, not only to yourself, but if you're a coach to your athletes or if you're an athlete, just suspending that final decision and staying open to any information out there, I think it's perfect, um, a perfect way to approach the grayness that sometimes um, science can produce or just the gaps that are there because it hasn't been researched yet. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of moves into application of the science. I dived into some compression garment stuff a couple years ago, so maybe there's some new research out there now. But I remember one article in particular that had positive results, and they did, I think they did a double blind. They had the same athletes do an effort, wear the compression garment, come back and test, and they had a placebo garment. And so each athlete did the test twice, once with the placebo and once with the real garment. And they saw a positive result. Um, They saw a significant result. The thing is, is when you dive into that study a little bit more and you think about it, is one is like, how do you get a placebo compression garment? How can you tell me that one compression garment, which is tighter than another, how do you tell me that an athlete doesn't recognize that? In these some types of studies, like this the, this compression garment study, it's really hard to take out the placebo. I mean, I don't know. You'd have to get like an epidural or something <laughs> to, 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 to take the feeling out of their legs while they're sitting on it with this garment for this twenty four hour period of recovery. The other thing is, is that the garment that they used in that is a full tight. Now. How many triathletes and and cyclists are using a full tight for a full 24 hours? Hmm, makes you wonder. The other thing in this study is that I worry about it because if you're not scientifically literate, you wouldn't wouldn't catch this, but they had a confidence interval of 90%. So they were looking for significance at the 0.1 level. Now, that is junk science, in my opinion. In in the hard sciences, significance comes at 0.05. It comes at a 95% confidence level. Now, to do an experiment and change the confidence level so that you can find significance is kind of like playing tennis and cutting the net down halfway or playing basketball and moving the hoop down. It's, It's not the same thing. So they're changing the rules of the game in order to show significance in that paper, which is, to me, is not good science. And that also gets into this other kind of scary thing that's going on in the science world right now, now that I've totally shaken people's, (laughs) how they feel about science. There's also, there's a recent science article where these, these scientists wrote up this total junk article. It was horrible. And they sent it off to a bunch of online journals, like these pay online journals where you pay the journal to get your article published. So they sent this junk article out to all these journals and the journals published something like 70% or something like that of these journal articles published this junk article. It was purposely crap. So this right now that is going on is shaking the foundation of the scientific community, I think. <laughs> it's just scary. So, it, it, and you, so you really have to look at impact factors and is it a reputable journal and, 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 and is it being cited by good sports scientists and, and things like that. So it really comes back down to it's like, oh, well, how do I know this research is good? Well, you might not know if the, the research is good it really comes back to being open to new evidence because reality is not going to change, but our perception of reality will change as we do more experiments. So the hope is is that the truth 
will come out eventually. Now, that's not the best thing for the endurance athlete that wants to hear and know about the latest and greatest and whether they should change their training, but it is really good and important to know when you're looking into scientific research. It really opens a can of worms, though. Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. It, it really paints a picture that it's hard to get information out of these research papers without really knowing your stuff. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you don't start somewhere, then you won't start. And like I said, like, I don't want to scare anybody. When it comes down to, like, people kind of battling it out on an, on an internet forum and one person showing one paper and one for, person showing another paper to kind of determine truth about some kind of training aspect, realize that, that someone can pick apart your paper and it might not be as true as you would think. There it might not be as true as the abstract would show it to be. So I, I'm not trying to cast doubt on the whole scientific method here because really it's the best that we have. We just have to be honest about its shortcomings in order to help improve them and to also, you know, to not be led astray. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Something that, that I thought about instantly when you were talking about compression garments, I listened to an interview with Dr. Ross Tucker. Yeah. He was talking about compression garments. Someone was asking the question whether they're worthwhile. He was pretty much on the I don't know opinion yeah. of them but his conclusion from that is like I don't know why not you know why not actually wear them so I thought that was an interesting take as well because that's still having a stance where you're open to new evidence later on to form a, a more advanced opinion but at this stage if it's not going to get in the way of what you're doing right now coming back to the person and their training then yeah why not well, the why not has to do with cost, right? Like whether the cost is money or time or mental energy or or any of that kind of stuff. It's it's every time you prescribe something to an athlete, whether it's a test or an interval session or a supplement or something, it has a cost to the athlete. So you always have to take into consideration that cost. So I think about like if, if a compression garment's only giving a placebo effect and... The question is, is, is the placebo effect additive? Because, you know, there's certainly something that you're doing that you think works that you don't know doesn't work. So you might be getting a placebo effect from that, too. And then you get something else that you are pretty certain is a placebo effect. And the question is, is that, is that additive? I don't think it is. And so the question comes down, if it's just a placebo what is the cost to the athlete for that placebo? So say that athlete has to think about buying the, the right type of compression sock, going through the uncomfortableness of wearing it for 24 hours, uh, remembering to put it in their gear bag, all of these like little things. But uh, at the end of the day, if I can take that stress out of my athlete's life, maybe that's the best way to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so I think it about, about it like that. If someone says, why not? I would say, well, well there's, you could say, why not about a lot of things? Why not, why not wear some magic crystals? So it's, it, I readily admit my approach on some of that stuff is conservative. Not politically, but just conservative. <laughs> um, my approach might be a little bit different than somebody else. Maybe another uh, sports scientist. But I, I would rather just kind of have a bare bones approach to training if I can, just to holistically, I hate that word and what it means sometimes, but looking at the whole person, like maybe it's just better to, to not have that athlete who has a day job and kids and a wife and a house 10 to 15 hours of training every week. Maybe if we can not have them have to worry about compression socks too maybe that's the better way to go yeah that's good i'm fairly similar actually fairly yeah. conservative with what i get people to do because a lot of it whether it's a waste of time or a waste of money compared to doubling down on what you do have in front of you or yeah you know, yeah where you spend your time just get the yeah. basics right sometimes and you can get a better performance outcome than yeah doing something crazy being a coach that's you know, known for trying to coach using the scientific method and the in the in the and using knowledge that we've acquired through the scientific method. A lot of people have this kind of straw man of science that is this hard, cold thing. But 
really, if you're listening to the science, all of the science that's out there, it, it says that we should be listening to our athletes and what they say. And I mean, sometimes the, the best way to understand if an athlete's overtraining or something like that is just having a conversation with them. And, you know, not running to the lab and measure, measuring cortisol levels or something like that. I mean, I think people kind of misunderstand uh, what it means to, to be training with science a lot of times. And if you're applying good science along with good coaching, I think it'll, it'll further an athlete more than having this kind of straw man idea of this hard approach to things. Because, I mean, really, when you, like, we've, I think the take like one of the things we've been really discussing here is that when you really dive into the information, there is no black and white. There, there is, there is no, a lot of times there really isn't a really, really good solid answer for things. We just have to end up going with the best call that we can make based on the evidence out there. And to kind of touch on what you were saying about what's in the scientific paper versus what I'm doing already with my athlete. Then you get into this kind of epistemological kind of can of worms because training athletes is not the scientific method. They're totally two different things. Now, you can set up something that's kind of scientific with your athlete. Like you can put a dose, that being a supplement or, or a training workout or, or a block of, or, or something like that and see what the response is. But that's not a scientific experiment because you only have an N of one for, and you have not had it peer reviewed and, and all of the other things that go along with the scientific method. So you can do things in training that are kind of, kind of science-y, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term. Pseudoscience. Yeah, it's, it's certainly pseudoscience. But when it comes to you know the wheels hitting the ground, that's the best we have sometimes as coaches. Again, it comes down to this kind of how do you approach that? Let's say I gave a dose response or I gave a dose to an athlete, the dose being a type of interval training. I saw a positive result from it. I could interpret that result as it was good, but I also have to be, because it wasn't a scientific experiment, I have to be very, very open to that, to the fact that that, that dose of that interval did not do what I thought it did. There's actually a lot to it. It's a lot more than just reading something and trying to get something from it because you have to make sense of it in your own world if you're making the decisions for you. For you, what would be the lowest hanging fruit if someone wants to make this switch because they're interested in the information but they've never actually gone out and actively searched for any research to, to back up any questions they have? I think a really good place to start and something that's just fun to read, it, I mean, from my perspective, is there's a lot of good reviews out there on, you know, physiological aspects of cyclists, physiological aspects of endurance athletes. The literature's fairly new from, like, the 90s and on. Um, you know, there's a few reviews and there's a few papers by uh, Coyle that are just... Mm -hmm. Really, just fundamental reads, um, certainly for any cycling coach, and, and just good reads. If you're serious about your cycling or endurance sport at, at all, like and these papers are just really kind of eye-opening. So I, I think if, if you're interested in kind of getting your feet wet in, in reading scientific literature, we can probably post a link to a few of these below i'd imagine you know some of these just very basic kind of reviews out there on what it takes physiologically to be a good endurance athlete yeah i definitely have a, a couple that i can add to that list and we will link to some things in the show notes to uh check out ones that are freely available and pretty much those ones are i, I think that you don't need to access any special database to get them but that's Definitely a really, really solid introduction. And my final words on the thing would definitely just be that it does get easier and it starts to really unravel itself if you put some more time into it. 
Yeah, for me, it's replaced anything like a cycling magazine or anything. Just that information and going straight to the source is, is so much more rewarding. But yeah, any final words? You brought up a, a really interesting point there that's, that I, I think about a lot. And we were talking about the blogs and realized that the, the blogs and the magazines, it's their business to put out articles and just they're just trying to crank out articles as much as they can so that readers have something to read. And cycling and, and, and training for endurance sports are, are not the biggest topics. So at, at some point, you're, you're grasping for articles from wherever in order to fill that void to get the readership that you want. And that just means that there's a lot, there's a greater chance for these layman's articles to just kind of not be that great. Um, if you can acquire the skill that it takes to look up these scientific papers and to, to and to read them and to interpret them and to apply them, it's it's going to do you know do your training and performance a favor in in the future. Yeah, I guess that's kind of my last word is that this is a skill uh, that that. You know, can not only help with you. Well, if you want to get really big about it, it's not only going to help your performance, hopefully, but it also helps you kind of how how you understand the world around you and, and that type of thing. So, just being able to say like, "Oh, I saw this layman's article about raw milk. I could probably go look up the scientific literature on that and see if that is backed up." Anyways, I digress. <laughs> no, I, I think it's great that. Um it definitely is a skill that you can apply to apply to other areas other than being a really hot performance hack because the information that you can get from any article or research could really help your cycling if if it's applied right but uh, I definitely will end it there thank you very much for your time I appreciate you spending the time to actually think about the process of how to go through this stuff and uh, try and break it down so we can get more people going directly to the source and uh, where's the best place that people can find you well you can follow me on twitter um, at boyntoncoaching.com you also have a website boyntoncoaching.com and I also have a facebook boyntoncoaching on facebook and boynton is b-o-y-n-t-o-n you can also contact me through any of those methods that's that's how to get a hold of me if if anyone has any questions or or wants to talk further. Uh, I, I consider myself um, as far as this type of stuff is. I'm still a student. Um, I I'm still. If someone has more information or a different way to look at what I've talked about today, I, I'd love to hear it. You know, we didn't talk about it at all, but or, or you and I have talked about it a little bit. Uh, I'm on my way to Australia this summer to, to start a PhD program in Perth and it's all because I want to learn more about all of this type of stuff and uh, continue growing in this so I, my hope is uh, to, that you know today I could help some people learn some things but also I, I put myself out there so that I can get feedback from other people and now the tech hacks and products section and it's a product called Vespruza. And just like the name, it is totally the lamest cycling product or invention that I have seen in a long, 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 long time. It's a weird water-holding contraption that you stick on your handlebars and squirt water into your face. And for me, it's just freaking crazy and not in a good way. I'm... Not sorry about it, but I really can't get behind this product. My advice is to go to the website, have a bit of a chuckle, because I know as soon as you will see it, you will understand exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm not even giving it any more airtime except go and have a look at it. It is a big, big fail. And now to that quote from the top of the show, it's Jack Bobby Bobridge aiming for the hour record like every other ex-tracky road convert and a couple of random other TT stars. He's got the potential though to give it a really, really solid crack because when he is flying, he is flying and at the moment he's back in Oz. He would be in a super comfortable environment. He doesn't have the pressures of the pro peloton 
writing him, so you never know what's going to happen. And definitely after his solid showing at the Australian Time Trial Champs, there is potential he could hold the record, even if it is just for a short time, because it has to be inevitable that Wigo is going to smash it, right? And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash science to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 